Hello again, it's Jazina Kameling, Head of Regulatory Outreach for the EMEA region for CFA Institute. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have with me Mary Lung, Head of Advocacy for Asia Pacific for CFA Institute, and Jim Allen, Head of Advocacy for the Americas for CFA Institute, and who are my dear and trusted colleagues, especially when we brainstorm on the key topic today, which is costs and charges. Costs and charges in the investment um, management industry has been a hot potato in discussion with stakeholders, with regulators, supervisors, and the press has caught on to this. It links into the debate about active-passive management. It links into the debate of fiduciary duty, responsibility to your ultimate investor. And in this podcast, we will be focusing on this topic from a perspective from the Asia-Pacific region, from the Americas, and from the EMEA region. But let me start with the EMEA region and also with where CFA Institute comes in on this debate. CFA Institute promotes investor protection and market integrity. And this is in our mission statement. We say in our mission statement, we want to act for the benefit of society, for the ultimate good of society. So we take part in debates about performance and cost presentation, about the clarity and transparency. Be clear and simple. Let your retail investor understand what it is he is committing to and buying. In particular, CFA Institute promotes the adoption also of GIPS standards, which is General Investment Performance Standards, which are global. They are an investment industry standard for calculating and presenting historical investment performance, which is a key issue. And this was right at the debate within the EU when we looked at the PRIPS document, which is a key investor information document, and where there are uh, there is an exclusion of past performance because politicians felt that it was a miscalculation, it misrepresented to retail investors. Um, and this is something that uh, CFA Institute is engaging on and wants clarified. Overall, CFA Institute supports the use of performance fee structures that clearly and completely disclose all fee and cost charged to investors. Structures leading to unfair and unreasonable expenses should not be permitted. And there I will go to a survey we did together with the Edamon Trust, where we looked at the gap between what retail investors expect globally and where they're actually being met on that expectation. So we asked the question, are you happy with uh, and do you want a full disclosure of fees and other costs? 84% of retail investors said they think this is very important, but there is a gap of 40% in it being met, and that shows the challenge. So again, what was crucial to retail investors is that there should be transparency in disclosing and managing conflicts of interest. There should be clear investment reports that are easy to understand. Again, a gap of 30%. And looking to the value of the relationship, getting getting returns that are similar or better than a target benchmark too. So all of these show that there is a gap between what is being proposed, what is out um, and, and provided to retail investors and what they're getting. 
And then we go to some work that CFA Institute has done in the EU region, where we work together with Better Finance, an association of financial users. There, um, we both asked, Better Finance asked their uh, member associations, and CFA Institute discussed with EU charterholders. This was the question, do you agree? that simple and standardized information on costs and non-pass performance presented in comparison with an objective benchmark should be provided to retail investors when they purchase a financial product. 77% of our surveyed members said, yes, this is key and should be included. So that shows, again, there is a very high, let's say, demand also from the industry that this should be absolutely clear and, and, and understood. When I go to another question, which then focuses specifically on the key information document, where we look at what is what is being offered at the moment, we see that both financial users and CFA Institute professionals in the EU have very similar views on what should be in that document. What they both say is there should be standardized information on past performance of investment products. Future performance scenarios are currently not easily understandable for the majority of investors. The future reduction in yield cost approach of the key information document is not intelligible and is difficult to compare for retail investors. And lastly, performance-based compensation and incentive payments are not always considered as cost and therefore not disclosed as such. Again, to see this similarity in looking at the importance of these issues in an information document shows that CFA professionals are very much aligned with financial users. Let's go to the ESMA report on usage costs and performance, which was done at the request of the EU Commission as they reviewed legislation and, and sought to help what was, what was currently being offered to retail investors. ESMA analyzed the costs and performance of active and passive equity usage and found that overall active funds underperform passive funds, ETFs, and their benchmarks in net terms, despite active equity funds having a higher gross performance in the last 10 years. Costs, in particular ongoing costs that are higher for, for most active usage, have the largest impact. The findings also show that higher costs do not correspond to better performance. There are heightened liquidity risk concerns for usage, which have contributed to the worsening overall risk outlook for the asset management sector. So how did CFA Institute respond to the consultation by ESMA on performance fees and usage? On performance fees for retail schemes, CFA Institute supported the objective for clarifying the approach through homogeneous EU-wide rules, possibly via the single supervision of ESMA. Now, this, of course, is difficult. The EU has recently completed the European Supervisor Authority's review. And although some, uh, there is some cross-border supervision, this is not the case for USITs and other retail funds. So when performance fees are applied and when they pursue, let's say, uh, when, when we look at retail-oriented funds which pursue an inherently passive or low-risk strategy, the expected outperformance is low, and the, hence an additional cost engaged by the manager does not really justify a performance fee. When a fund pursues an absolute return investment strategy, 
In this case, applying the performance fees on the money market rates may misrepresent the potential for performance achievement. So we see some of the issues that will be very complicated to solve. Retail schemes under the usage directive are also most of the time liquid, open-ended structures which permit entry or exit on a daily basis sometimes. And again, performance fees in such structures will create administrative complication and could result in the unfair treatment of investors and may ultimately harm market integrity. So we recommend regulators to pay due consideration to these aspects. And this is really quite, quite a crucial point. So I turn to my colleagues because I have explained the situation in the EU. But what about the Americas, Jim? Where are you on costs and past performance and, and charges? What, what, is, what are the issues for retail investors? And what is the CFA Institute view on that in the Americas? Well, there's a pretty well-established structure for providing information about costs, about past performance, about uh, you know the governance of of an individual product and the like. So that's it's reasonably well established. It's the prospectus structure. Um, you're going to have you know these things that are usually rather thick documents. They're usually written in very small type, very legalese. Not terribly easy to, to work your way through. Most people sort of look at it, get intimidated, set it aside. If you're interested in finding information, it's most likely going to be, you can most likely find it in there if you're so inclined, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. But that's the way, you know, that's what we have in the, in the United States at this point. Do you have a key information document? No, we do not have a key okay. information document. There are some... You know some uh, Q and A. I mean, some some key information that they they will put in sort of a Q and A type structure. But but there is nothing that has been regulated at the let's say at the level that everybody has to provide it. It's not, voluntary. Not in the same manner as which the I mean, as the EU has done. Yes. And how is past performance being looked at? I mean, when information is provided to retail investors on past performance, that again is individual. Um, anyone can establish it and, and do it the way they want? Uh, no, no. In fact, uh, uh, you know, our work on GIPS was fairly early established in, in the U.S. Uh, I think it was maybe even early days uh, before it was called GIPS, it was called uh, Performance Presentation Standards back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but, you know, the SEC in that regard has not stepped in and said, you need to present and you need to present past performance in this way, because essentially they've said you've got a, uh, a self, uh, self-regulatory structure through GIPS. To, that you should uh, use to to provide the uh, uh, provide past performance information. And does the SEC check compliance of GIPS? Um, well, that's more done by the uh, the the GIPS entities. That I mean, the there are it's kind of an infrastructure that's set up on, on, you know underneath the GIPS structure where they're ensuring that people are adhering to the the GIPS standards. So I'm going to turn to uh, Mary. Um, in Asia-Pacific, what is the situation there? You have a lot of retail investment. Mm -hmm. 
you have copied usage in in some measure. And um, I know that between Asia Pacific and the EU, there's a lot of discussion and collaboration. So what has been happening in Asia Pacific? Hello, Josina. Thank you for having me. Um, I think it is, before I start, it is prudent to remind listeners that Asia-Pacific is not uniform in that we have many different jurisdictions very widely, wildly in terms of their regulatory and legal framework and in their stages of development when it comes to the sale of mutual funds and other financial products. Unfortunately, there is not very much harmonization between the different markets. So we need to be cognizant when we talk about Asia-Pacific in broad brush that it may only apply to some markets, but not all of the markets. But having acknowledged that, I think your question is a very good one. Globally, since the global financial crisis, a number of regulators have focused on investor protection in the form of how to eliminate the conflict of interest between an advisor or distributor or any intermediaries and their end clients. In Asia-Pacific, the same exercise also happened in some of the key markets that we looked at, including Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and India. Some markets, such as Australia, decided to ban commissions. Others, such as Hong Kong, in Hong Kong and Singapore, looked at it and decided that, for the moment, commissions still work and that they allow both models. In India, they have gone partway by uh, banning upfront commissions, but they do still allow trailing commissions. So we can see that a lot of jurisdictions in Asia-Pacific are keeping an eye on what's going on in, um, uh, in, in Europe, particularly because they feel that um, uh, what happens in Europe will one day trickle down to, to, to Asia-Pacific. But in the past, even though in the past a lot of markets in Asia-Pacific will automatically follow where the US and EU are leading, these days I think they are sitting back watching, learning, and taking the cue, but not, but they don't necessarily jump in right away. So in the space of fees and charges, I think it remains to be seen as to whether more and more markets in Asia-Pacific will become more stringent in regulating the actual fees and, uh, and charges. India, the regulator there, SEBI, has established caps on the level of management expenses asset management companies can charge their funds. But that's only part of the story. There's also distribution costs that the distributor may charge either the end client uh, or they may get a rebate from the fund management company. And those charges are also increasingly coming under scrutiny. We can see when we have discussed, we have discussed the three zones and we can see quite a difference between them. But at the same time, we know financial services is becoming more global. And we also know that with fintech, it will be increasingly easy for retail investors to buy online and the products may be sourced from wherever. Do you see any further challenges for this development as investors go more online? What are, what are the challenges for you, Jim? That's a good question. Just I, I would say that the challenge is going to be making sure that there's, you know, that the information is standard, that it adheres to at least a, how would you say, almost, a, a, you know, a, a degree of disclosure that is currently mandated by the SEC. I know there's equivalency considerations that are 
that are generally looked at in these kinds of uh, situations. But, you know, it's just a matter of making sure that investors are, you would like to make sure that investors are able to get the information that they need to make prudent decisions. If they're buying it sort of sight unseen online, in some ways there's, you know, there is the possibility, I would presume, that people could try to market directly and uh, not necessarily do it in a way that's uh, appropriate. And in Asia Pacific, of course, Alibaba has been very actively looking for retail investors. So, Mary, what are the challenges for you there? That's a very, very interesting question. In, during the course of our research, what we have found is that in some of the more developed markets, because of the entrenchment of legacy systems, it's actually very difficult for some of these financial technology players to break through. So in those markets, technology has been used as a supplemental tool to help incumbents service their customers. However, in fast developing markets such as China, digital disruption is a real thing because they're leapfrogging many generations of technology. So we've heard and we've seen that many people in China are actually acquiring and you know, transacting in funds on online or on the, on, through their mobile phones. So this is something that's quite unique and that we're not even seeing in the more developed markets. Yeah, and interestingly, a lot of the technology providers, such as the ones that you've, the ones that you mentioned, they are in some of these more developed markets. They are developing platforms and tools that they can on sell to incumbents. So white labeling, OEMs. So they will come up with a solution that other banks other incumbents can come along and put slap their label on. Which is exactly what Alibaba has done in yes. the UK mm-hmm. with, I think, I can't remember which bank, it, but I know they have partnered in the UK. So I think we see um, the challenges as we enter a new era, which is uncharted territory because of the globalness of where products might be sourced. And at CFA Institute, investor protection is really a key issue. So working through to what the fiduciary responsibility will be, that that will be the key question and probably the topic of another podcast. But Jim, I think you yeah. have a last comment yeah, you want I, to say. One of the, the priorities that our members have set for us in, in recent years is to make sure along these lines that the need to have better disclosure of costs and risks. Part of the issues about costs is, you know, it's like I say, those big, long, those big, thick prospectuses, you know, they get, they'll give you some information, but it's not clear what costs you're paying. And sometimes not all the costs are, are necessarily going to be shown in there. So yeah. that's one thing we wanted a more accurate and probably more understandable presentation of those costs. On the risk side, I think that's probably a little more maybe even problematic and concerning because you want to make sure that, you know, you're not buying something that has risks that are just not consistent with your uh, investment per- investment outlook, your investment uh, strategy and the like. And sometimes you may get into an instrument that uh, maybe doesn't have the liquidity, maybe doesn't have the market making, maybe it has leverage in some manner that you don't necessarily understand how it's going to play out. 
is under certain circumstances. And I think that is a really key thing that we are looking at and trying to convey to the commission. And uh, Mary, you want to say something? Yes. Do. Just to add to Jim's point, not only is uh, the total cost payable by the customer very important, but who these charges go to can also be more transparent. And I'll give you an example. In some of the Asia-Pacific markets that we've come across, it's typical for the asset managers to pay the distributors a trailing commission for so long as the investor remained invested in the funds. Um, uh, and, and, and because of these trailing commission, basically the investors pay for everything, right? So the investors think that they're paying, I don't know, 1% or 120 basis points uh, to the asset management company. But in fact, half of that fee may actually be rebated to the distributors. And when investors don't understand that, they have the wrong perception as to the value for money that the asset management company is providing. Um, and that may distort their investment making decisions. And, and along those lines, it also has the, the the perspective. I mean, you, the investor may have the perspective that this is was offered to me because it was the best product. But really, it is. And, and what Mary's describing sort of says that well, maybe it wasn't the best product for this individual. And you need to know that. And you need to know the motivations. And that's why those kinds of disclosures are so important. And I think we, we're coming into a period where it's going to be incredibly challenging because we have the sustainable agenda, which, again, is giving retail investors even more information and may make them pay or not for something that is just greenwashing. So that uh, is something regulators really need to take a look at. And I would say also, paradoxically, while we develop a global network where we can buy and source whatever we want from wherever we want around the globe, we are also going to focus more on really specialist advice because we want advice very simple on our life. And politicians are linking into that, calling this uh, looking at the life cycle of a person where you look at the outgoings and ingoings, their medical situation, what they need to lay out for their children in education and how that challenges or not their investment decisions. And so our charter holders have said that they see themselves as life cycle advisors, which I think is a very good term for what is fiduciary responsibility. Thank you both very much. Until next podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Josina.